Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, so today Paul is taking us to the land of the rising sun, Japan, which I have to say I'm pretty pleased about because after we had the whole white ship thing a couple of weeks ago, I thought it only fair we should have some black ships on as well. Ah, yes, of course, yes, the black ships, uh, Commodore Perry, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so that's where we're heading today, but look, you can't talk about the unique aspects of Japanese culture that led to Perry and his ships without first taking a look at the culture itself, which for me, and I think, I mean, also for a lot of you, we're going to talk about one big word, Paulie. Samurais. <laughs> That's right, yeah, the samurai. It really is the iconic defining image, isn't it, from this period um, for Japan. But a lot of people have asked me, yeah, who exactly were the samurai? Um, because, of course, yeah, we know that they're military, we know they're soldiers, but they're also, a, they're almost an officer caste. Mikey, yeah. Yeah, but Paul, it's not like so the, the English where a knighthood gets passed down from father to son, but there is something vaguely hereditary about it, isn't there? Well, that's right, yeah. Obviously, each family, once you've attained the rank of samurai, you try and keep it, but you each generation has to earn it as well. And we're talking here, you know, predominantly from uh, the 12th century right up until 1876, when the whole samurai are actually abolished. But during that time, they are serving the daimyo, who are the feudal landholders, the nobility, if you like, and they're following this Bushido code. Now, this code gives them prestige, obviously, and privileges like the, the two swords. Ah, uh, yes, the long, the long one and the short one. <laughs> That's right, yeah, the katana and the kodachi, although <laughs> if we're going into samurai swords, we'll probably need a whole other episode. But to earn the right to use those weapons, they have to abide by the martial virtues and they're not allowed to show things like pain. And of course, they've got to swear absolute loyalty. Now, like I said, it all starts back in the 12th century and they emerge as an entity, if you like, in the great Genpai Wars. They're from 1180 to 1185. But today we're going to be talking about a second period, the Warring States period in the 15th and 16th century, because that's when the samurai become the predominant force in Japan. And it's also this period which sets up the classic Tokugawa shogunate, which reigns from 1603 right through to 1865, 1868, uh, with the Meiji Restoration. And I know about the Meiji Restoration because I watch a lot of Antiques Roadshow. Now, mate, I just want to get one thing clear. What's the difference between a shogun and a daimyo? Okay, so the daimyo, they're the nobility. They're the the landholders. Shogun, to give it its real title, is Sei-i-tei shogun, which means the commander-in-chief of the expeditionary force against the barbarians. Now, when you say barbarians, Paul, are you talking internal or external barbarians? External barbarians, so anybody who's not Japanese um, is considered um, to be a foreigner at this stage. And these shoguns, they're nominally appointed by the emperor 
with each of the rival clans, the rival daimyos, jockeying for position. Because, of course, technically, the emperor only needs one shogun at a time. But in reality, by this period, these shoguns have become the rulers themselves. They've become military dictators and the emperor is being reduced to almost a ceremonial role. But I'm guessing, Paulie, with so much emphasis on symbolism during this period, that's still pretty important. That's right, Mikey. And the shogun, he really pays heed to this symbolism because his government, he actually rules from a tent um, deliberately to show that he is still the military field commander, but also you know, to show that his rule technically is only temporary and could be rescinded by the emperor at any time, even though, of course, the emperor by now is just a puppet. OK, mate, but you know, there's one more question I've got to ask. What about the ninjas? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, all right. So ninjas, very different to samurai. Samurai, the whole point is honour and virtue. The ninjas, or to give them their other name, the shinobi, they're the secret agents, the, uh, the mercenaries, the espionage, deception. Um, but they are, funnily enough, seen by the Japanese as dishonourable um, and beneath... The samurai. Yeah, sure, sometimes they team up to oil the cogs, but really they're very, very separate. So it's the samurai who are the pinnacle. And of course, you know, 99.9% of them are Japanese and 99% of them are male. And this is very much epitomized by the three heroes that we've got today. We're talking about the three greatest samurai who've gone down in history as the three great unifiers. Now, Paul, I can't help but notice you said 99.9% Japanese and 99% male. So come on, there must be some exceptions to the rule. Well, that's it. And I think there's a couple of them who really do deserve a mention in dispatches. So I've got a couple for you, Mikey. The first one is a guy called Yasuke. And he's an African slave who in 1579 is brought to Japan by the Jesuit missionaries. Now, before this guy turned up, no one in Japan had ever seen a black person in their lives. The shogun at the time, who's Oda Nobunaga, who we'll get to a little bit later, he strips Yasuka to the waist and he starts rubbing his skin because he can't believe that it's not ink that's going to be rubbed off. He's so impressed by Yasuke, who was an enormous guy, almost two meters tall. He was so impressed with him, he makes him his bodyguard. And in 1581, Yasuke becomes one of the very few foreigners ever to be elevated to the rank of samurai. And was there a female? There certainly was, Mikey. Tomo Gozen, probably the most famous of them. Now, she dates back to the Genpi Wars I was talking about before. And technically, she's actually a honor bugesha, which means a female martial artist, because at that period, the samurai caste was still being formalized, but she was trained to use the naginata, which are the spears, and the kaiken, which are the daggers. On one occasion, she leads a thousand horsemen, cavalry, into battle. On another occasion, she fights with 300 and defeats 6,000. And we're told in the tale of the Haiki, which is the epic poem about the Genpai Wars, we're told that she used to collect her opponents' heads as souvenirs. And I've got a quote for you. She was also a remarkably strong archer. And as a swordswoman, she was a warrior worth a thousand, ready to confront a demon or a god mounted or on foot. OK, last one. I think you know what's coming here. I've got to ask you the question about William Adams, you know, the hero of James Clavell's novel and probably known to people my age as being played by Richard Chamberlain in the TV miniseries The Shogun. 
was he a real character? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised, actually, Mikey. He is very much based on a real figure, this William Adams. He was the first Englishman in Japan, um, as far as we know. Um, and he was actually a pilot on a Dutch expedition that in 1600, the small fleet had been stranded by storms and washed up on the shores of Kyushu. So he'd been taken to Osaka. He'd been taken to meet the shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who we'll come to later as well. And not just him, but also from his ship, 18 bronze cannon, which actually came in very useful because the shogun was able to turn them on his enemy. He also, in 1604, supervised the construction of the first Western-style ship for the shogun. And in return, he's elevated to the rank of samurai. Now, to be fair, he didn't actually fight any battles. He was more of a diplomat who went around Southeast Asia um, on various expeditions. Um, But he was an important figure. And in 1613, he actually set up the first ever trading post in Japan for the East India Company, who we were talking about in the other uh, episode. And then he takes a Japanese wife. He lives there for the rest of his days. And when he does die in 1620, he's buried with full samurai honours. Now, this week we're talking about the role of the samurai in Japanese history, and in particular, three samurai who unified Japan. That's right, Mikey. We're talking about the three great unifiers, and we're talking about that fractious period in Japanese history, the the warring states period, which lasts for 150 years, but coming to an end as we close out the 16th century. Now, these three men, they're all samurai, and their names are Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Now, I'll start with Oda, Oda Nobunaga. He's the guy who we talked about before who uh, raised the African slave, Yasuki, to the role of samurai. Oda, he's born in 1534. He's known as the Demon King. And he's probably the one who's got the most respect within Japanese culture, even though he's not perhaps so well known around the world. He's a great warrior strategist. He's the head of the Oda clan. And he manages to crush all the other rival clans in Honshu, which of course is the main big island in the middle of Japan. And he takes those first steps to unifying the nation. But as I said, it's only one island and there are four main islands um, in total. So he doesn't complete the job. And unfortunately, in 1582, he's ambushed in the Hanoji Temple in Kyoto by one of his own men, Akachi Mitsuhedi. And he's forced to commit what we would call Harry Carry, uh, but what the samurai would call seppuku. I've actually been to that temple. Yeah, well, that temple's still there, Mikey. In fact, a lot of the castles and temples we're going to mention today, they're all there. I, I had a great few months in Japan in 2002 when I was lucky enough to travel around uh, the country. And if you do go, you will be able to see some of the amazing uh, samurai relics that are still there today. But let me get on to the next one. Oda Nobunaga, he was number one. Number two is the guy called Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and I'm going to come to him in a minute. And number three, the last one, is Tokugaya Ieyasu. Now, in 1598, after Hideyoshi dies, number two, this man, Tokugawa, he is appointed to the Council of the Five Elders. Now, by this stage, the other rival clans have been defeated, but there's still an internal power struggle. 
So in 1600, he has to defeat Ishida Mitsunari, who's like the rival general at the Battle of Sakigahara. Um, and this is when he uses uh, your man William Adams' cannons and turns oh, right. them against them to help him win. Uh, and then in 1603, he is recognised as the ultimate shogun by the emperor, Go Yose, and he moves his capital to Edo, which, of course, we know as Tokyo today, and he begins that classic Tokugawa shogunate and what we call the Edo period, which lasts all the way through to the 19th century and to Meiji Restoration. And a lot of we know as classic Japanese art, music, uh, porcelain and culture comes from that Edo period. Exactly. But my man today, Mikey, the one I think is the most interesting is the number two, the second one, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who's known as the second unifier. Now, he's actually the son of just an average foot soldier. He's in the Oda clan. Yeah, Oda Nobunaga is his chief, and he actually ends up being Oda's sandal bearer. You know, that's just how low down the pecking order he was. Yeah, his nickname was Kazaru, little monkey, because he was skinny and had this really funny face. But he is a great warrior, and he does distinguish himself as a general. He helps Oda attack the Himeji Castle. Uh, That's the one that's in there. Only Live Twice, the James Bond movie, the big yeah. white one. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it really is worth a visit. And together they defeat the Mori clan. Um, but as I said, Oda, he's forced to commit suicide. But my man Toyotomi, he has his revenge. He kills Akechi at the Battle of Yamazaki. And he then goes on to defeat the other rival general, uh, Shibata Katsue, in 1583 at the Battle of Shizugatake. So he becomes the leader of the Oda clan. He destroys all the other clans, the last one to fall being the Hojo clan, who he defeats in 1590. And Toyotomi, in many ways, he's seen as the one who brings the warring states period to an end because now he's not just got Honshu, he's also in control of the islands of Shikoku and Kyoshu. (laughs) <laughs> now, there is also Hokkaido up in the north, but that, we'll, we'll have to save that one for another episode. But, mate, isn't he a bit of a controversial figure? Is, is he your hero or is he your howler? Yeah, well, that's a good point, Mikey, because, yes, he's probably known for as many cock-ups as he is successes. Yeah, he, he tries to invade um, Korea twice in 92 and 97. He fails on those. He has this campaign that he's going to launch against China, which never even gets off the ground. Um, in 1597, he famously banishes all the foreign missionaries. And Now, look, I've got nothing against banishing missionaries, but he also goes down as crucifying 26 missionaries and the Christian followers that they have with them. Um, you mentioned before about the porcelain. Yes, that's when the tea ceremony is probably at its height and you've got some beautiful tea pieces that come out of that. <laughs> but he's also remembered for ordering his tea master to commit suicide because of a mere slight on one of the ceremonies. God, he sounds like a Japanese Nero. Yes, that's right. And he's also the one who's gone down in history as the main entrencher of the feudal system by forbidding all common men from ever being allowed to take up arms, even though, of course, he rose from the son of a foot soldier to become a samurai. But, Paul, ultimately, the main reason why we in the outside world know about him is, well, it's, it's all to do with his policy of isolation. 
Yes, that's right, Mikey. And of course, this is where your black ships come in, because Hideyoshi will always be remembered for that incredible concept of Sakoku, the, the, the locked country, whereby Japan deliberately cut itself off from the rest of the world for almost 300 years. But he's still your pick, eh, Paulie? Well, that's right, Mikey, because of the three great unifiers, it's difficult to say which of the three was best, but there is a nice Japanese saying which is worth repeating, and it states that it was Nobunaga who pounds the rice to make the cake, and it was Ieyasu who sits down and eats it, but it was Hideyoshi who kneaded it and proofed it for the oven. Okay, folks, today we're talking about samurais and Japanese history, but at the start we mentioned black ships. So what about the black ships, mate? Well, that's it, Mikey. We talked about black ships because they are synonymous with this period, aren't they? Um, But they actually date back to the 16th century when the first Portuguese traders came to Japan because they all came in their large carracks with their hulls painted black with pitch. And so they became, if you like, the black ships in the Japanese psyche became synonymous with the foreigner baddies. Um, And of course, during this isolationist period, um, that was a massive feature of the Japanese society. You know, there hardly any foreigners were allowed in at all. The, you know, the odd Chinese or Korean trade delegation and the Dutch were allowed a small trading post in Nagasaki. But for the rest of the time, the whole of the Japanese nation was cut off. Uh, and of course, the West was very unhappy about this because they saw a massive market which they were no longer had access to. And that's when my man, Matthew Calbraith Perry, steams in over the horizon to force the hand for the US. Yeah, Commodore Perry, Mikey, everyone knows the name, but tell me a bit about the man. Well, a long distinguished naval career, in fact, um, goes back to 1812, the war with the British, he fights in that. He's also a naval commander in the in the Mexican War, 1846 to 1848. And also, too, he's sort of the pioneer of what we now know as gunboat diplomacy. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Maggie, because in what is it, 1853, he comes into Edo Bay, Tokyo for the first time, doesn't he, with four ships. And they really are black ships, aren't they? Because they've got the roaring smoke and the engines going. Um, and he warns the Shogun then that things will have to change. Uh, the Shogun beats him off, but he's back in 54. Uh, and this time he's got eight black ships with him and he parks them in Edo Bay. And of course, you know, the Japanese are very aware after the recent opium wars with China, just how strong the Western powers are compared to them. And from that, we get the Convention of Kanagawa, which is a month-long negotiation, and that ends up with the Treaty of Peace and Amity. That's right, yeah, the, the famous Treaty of Peace and Amity, <laughs> not much peace or amity at all. And of course, within five years, all the major Western powers um, have got a piece of the pie. So that's the episode for today, folks. Any questions about samurai, shoguns? Any questions about ninjas? Yeah, actually, I've got a, a favourite one, Hattori Hanzo, Mikey. Maybe I can tell you a bit more about that in Extra Helpings. All right, folks, there you go. Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. And of course, any questions about ships. I mean, we've had black ships, we've got white ships, but I'm sure there are plenty more other ships out there. Which brings us to next week when Mikey, you'll be delighted to hear, has promised he'll be blowing bubbles. Bubbles.